Welcome to episode 2007 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm all right. How are you? Negative. Oh, mm. no. no. Oh, for COVID. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> not just in general. <laughs> no, not just in general. I have a cheery disposition, you know, yeah. a, a rosy cheek mm-hmm. um, and a negative COVID test. So oh. doing great. Excellent. All right. Yeah. Well, I feel even safer co-hosting this podcast with you now, even though <laughs> we're never contagious from as far away as you are. No. <laughs> but, but that's good. You yeah. can now move about freely. Yeah. I'm gonna. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna leave. Um, we're gonna record, and then Ben, I might leave the house. Wow. Wow. I, I probably won't, but <laughs> I'm also negative for COVID as far as I know. Well, there you go. Good. So I have an update also on Shohei Otani who is also a, quite a positive person. And it turns out that he can hit now when he pitches. I did a, a stat blast about this some time ago, episode 1903, which was, I believe, last September toward the end of the season. And I noted that to that point, Shohei Otani had struggled, relatively speaking, on days when he pitched, when he was also hitting, there was a sizable disparity between his offensive stats on pitching days and non-pitching days. And we talked about whether that meant anything. And it has regressed in a good way thus far. So as uh, people probably noticed, Shohei Otani came close to cycling on Monday. He pitched seven innings. Uh, he got the W. He gave up some dingers as he he's been doing from time to time lately. Yeah. Perhaps throwing a few too many sweepers to opposite handed hitters, possibly. But he didn't give up a lot of hits. It's just that most of them were homers. However, he had as many hits at the plate, I think, as he allowed on the mound because he had a four hit day. And he came up in the ninth with the chance for the cycle. He needed a double and he didn't get it. I, I enjoyed his uh, <laughs> his quote about this uh, through his interpreter. I was definitely happy to see that walk. It, Mike Trout walked ahead of him to give Otani one last shot at him. I was definitely happy to see that walk give me a shot for the cycle, but I failed. Mm. <laughs> Which, <laughs> he singled. <laughs> he got his fourth hit of the day. Yeah. He just he failed to complete the cycle. But you got to be pretty happy about that day, I would think. He also had a, a quote here because someone told him, I guess, that he had had five times on base because he also walked. And so he was the first pitcher since 1964 to reach base five times in a game. Mel Stottlemyre was the last to do it. And I guess you could quibble over, is he a pitcher when he does that? Or is he acting as a DH? You know, he's he's two and one on those days. But they told him that he was the first to reach base in almost 60 years, five times in a game. And he said, I'm sure all those records come because the sample size is so small. So I don't really look too deeply into it. So he has an appreciation for samples. I don't know whether he means like the sample of 
pitchers slash hitters, like two-way players. Yeah. Or whether he means just pitchers who were competent offensive performers or just the fact that uh, there weren't as many pitchers hitting as there were other positions. I don't know exactly what he meant by that, but it takes a lot probably to impress him, I would imagine, yeah. after all this time, after he has impressed us and, and perhaps himself with his many accomplishments on the field. Including a, a home run that seemed like oh it went gosh. all the way to Jupiter, potentially. <laughs> yeah. Like, did it go out of our solar system? That was, yeah, it was stopped by a wall. But if there had <laughs> not been a wall and a fence there. Might have gone that, forever. Yeah, that was very much one of those, uh, it would have kept going. It was still, it wasn't rising, actually. Sometimes they say that. But it was still traveling at quite a pace. It yeah. was, what, a 115 miles per hour and 456 feet or something yeah. like that. It's just hitting in a part of the park where you don't usually see balls hit. Mm-mm. But updating now his numbers as a, a pitcher on the days when he pitches, I never know quite how to describe yeah. it. But, but <laughs> it wasn't just that game. In 41 plate appearances on pitching days this year, he's hit 444, 500, 694. So when you roll it all up, I had given these splits from 2021 to 2022 because he didn't hit on pitching days before that. This is all, by the way, courtesy of Lucas Apostolaris of Baseball Prospectus, who sent me the numbers. Over those two seasons, the split was 185 plate appearances on pitching days. He had a 762 OPS and 1120 plate appearances on non-pitching days. He had a 944 OPS. So what about 180 points of OPS? Yeah. That's a big difference. Yeah. Now, though, updating for his hot 40 plus plate appearances as a pitcher on pitching days this year, he now has 226 career plate appearances on pitching days and his OPS is up to 840 and his position player OPS now from 2021 to 2023 1259 plate appearances 934 so 934 versus 840 so now it's down from almost a 200 plate appearance uh, uh, 200 OPS point split to less than a 100 OPS point split. So I guess speaking of small samples, yeah. that was that was another one. And it looks like uh, that has regressed or normalized or he has figured out how to manage his workload in such a way that he's able to be a big offensive contributor on those days, too. Boy, what what can't he do? Did you? I assume that you watched this game because, you yes. know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which broadcast did you listen to? Did you listen to the Angels broadcast or the Orioles broadcast? Angels. So I I think I had the Orioles broadcast on and they were talking about Otani and uh, uh, claiming that he could be a plus center fielder today, right now. You know, mm-hmm. if he wasn't pitching, you know, just to mm-hmm. complicate your 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 little queries, Ben. <laughs> and and I I ask you as the foremost um, both uh, expert and enthusiast, you know, mm-hmm. someone who contemplated a career change to purely cover <laughs> yeah, Shohei Otani. Didn't end up applying for that position. I don't know whether it's been filled or not, but <laughs> not by me. Yeah, and so I I wonder, Ben, what do you think about that? Hmm. So today, as in Phil Nevin pencils him into center field today, or today as in he decided in spring training this year that he was going to be a center fielder or heading into next year that he's going to be a center fielder and he has time to prepare and shag flies and everything. The way way that it seemed like it was being put was Mm -hmm. today. 
Like, hmm. um, you know, uh, Mike Trout gets stuck in traffic, can't get to the ballpark. They are beside themselves. They don't hmm. know what to do. And so they're like, oh, I guess we got to run Shohei out there. <laughs> I would say probably not. Probably not. I think just having seen, like, look at the players who are making those adjustments, like Jazz Chisholm, for instance, mm-hmm. or Fernando Tatis, not to center, but Chisholm, like, he's looked a lot better. Like, he's gotten better over time, and the metrics have improved. And, yes. and then I, I know he kind of ran into the wall and, and hurt yeah. himself, but he made a lot of errors and and flubs that looked like oh he's uh, switching positions he's like he's playing there. this yeah right yeah it, it was clear that he had the physical abilities and, and tools i think to play that position because when the marlins announced that he was changing it was like oh okay well that's one of your franchise players like this is a risk you have a bunch of people playing out of position but it wasn't like he can't handle center given enough time and practice so i would probably put otani in that category of like if you stuck him out there today i don't think he'd be a plus center fielder now he has played outfield briefly as a professional early in his npb career he played corners at least and i'm sure that like his speed and his reactions and his athleticism and all of that he's pretty big i guess for a center fielder but i don't see why he he couldn't play a competent center field but probably not tonight I mean, you know, he'd be fine on routine place, I'm sure. But he'd probably also make some screw-ups out there as he got the hang of it. Yeah. I think it's a testament to him that, like, even for a very talented athlete who has the sort of speed and athleticism to to range around out there, that you're right. Like, it takes some period of adjustment if you're contemplating a position switch. And he mostly played right field when he was a fielder, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But it is a testament to him that I was like, well, what if he... And then I was like, no. But I I did think about it for a second. I contemplated the possibility and I was like, meh, meh, meh. So, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I I do feel like we've been deprived of seeing what kind of fielder he would be. I mean, we get to see him do so much already. Yeah, that don't get greedy. Gotta, no, I, but I always do. He makes me greedy because he does all these wondrous things. And then I'm like, well, what else could he do? And I would like to see, like, could he be a gold glove type outfielder if he was playing outfield every day? I don't see why not, right? So the fact that we call him a, a two-way player, whereas he doesn't play the fields except when he's pitching and, and fielding as a pitcher, right? So he's a, a DH, which allows him to demonstrate some of his skills and skills that no other pitcher possesses, but doesn't let us see just what kind of uh, athlete he is in the field other than the odds uh, covering first base and co- comebacker kind of play. Like, clearly he can field his position quite well, but it would be a, a treat. Like, If something were to happen to him where he weren't able to pitch anymore, and I'm not saying I want that to happen, I'm just saying if that were to happen, the silver lining, I guess, would be that, hey, if he could still play a position in the field every day, well, now he gets to be a complete position player and we get to see how good he'd be at that. But uh, again, no monkey's paw situation here. I want him to continue to pitch. I'm okay with being deprived of his glove for the most part, but I'm sure it'd be a good one. Especially now that he can hit on those pitching days. Yeah, exactly. And while we're talking about uh, people who can field and now get to field again, I guess we can close the book on the Wilson Contreras debacle, right? Can we? Are we going to be allowed that? Who knows, right? But, but, But the short national nightmare or local regional nightmare appears to be over now. And I don't know whether the fact that 
they went back on this so quickly <laughs> that they're like, okay, Wilson Contreras, he's catching again. Yeah. Uh, in a way, I mean, okay, it's good, I guess, that they acknowledge the error of their ways uh, implicitly, tacitly, right? Sure. And the fact that they kind of got crushed by every commentator they could have doubled down and been super stubborn and said well if we flip-flop this quickly then in a way it will make us look even sillier that we did that in the first place or the way that they did right so at least they they didn't double down but inevitably it does in a way make you question even more what they were thinking by going about it the way that they did because if the possibility was out there that he was going to be catching again in like 10 days or so then why would you put yourself through that so he's back at catcher on monday catching jack flaherty and Contreras, i think went hitless but flaherty pitched well the cardinals won 18 to 1 so i guess all is uh right with that little part of the world at least for right now all is something got to imagine yeah there's got to be like a, a little lingering bitterness about the way that went down I would think so. I would think that you'd look around and be like, this feels like a a bad time, a bad, bad mm-hmm. time. But I don't know. I'm I, I guess you're right. I'm glad that they're course correcting, but I'm they have an air of messiness about them, you know? Yeah. And that's so unusual for the Cardinals. Sometimes you're like, be be a little be a little messier. You're making us mm-hmm. all feel bad about ourselves because we we exist down here in mess and you <laughs> do not engage in mess. And then they were like, no, we'll be very messy. In fact, we shall do maximum mess. Yeah, um, really? Yeah. yeah. From the start of the season through now, you know, it's not as if, uh, as we've discussed, the, the Contreras stuff was the first bit of mess. There's been, there's been prior mess, Ben, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, a series of messes, but it's 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 so odd, yeah. though, in retrospect, that they handled it that yeah. way because they could have avoided this so yes. easily. Like, even if they thought that he or or they as a team needed a break from Wilson Contreras catching, if it wasn't going to be a long-term thing right. or if the possibility was there that it wouldn't be a long-term thing, then why make such a stink right. about it? Why draw so much attention right. to it? Why come out and announce and, right. and just draw the spotlight? Yeah. Like you could have either just not really said anything. Right. Right? I mean, you could have said like, we're, we're giving Wilson a little breather or a break back yeah. there or something, or you could have just not said yep. anything. I mean, you would have been asked about sure. it. Why isn't he catching today? But but he's not someone who has caught every single day his entire career. I mean, you could DH him sometimes. You could play him in other positions. He's done that before so it wouldn't have been the biggest story in baseball if he was not catching or catching part-time for a little while and instead they chose to just make this announcement and conflicting reports and come out and declare he's not catching anymore and then (laughs) next thing you know Ali Marmol's uh, he'll be our catcher moving forward (laughs) it's like I'm looking forward to see him catch again are you (laughs) I mean you could have you could have been catching all that time it's it's interesting because when I talked to Will Leach about this I, I noted that as messy as this seemed and as much as it didn't really seem to be in the best interest of, of the Cardinals as far as not only keeping one of your stars happy, but also just aligning your resources yeah. and the players you have at various positions, but that probably the Cardinals would play better than they had played to that point just because they had been underperforming right. to such an extent. And we thought they were a pretty good team. Yeah. And that 
that is kind of what happened. Like during this little interregnum during the Wilson Contreras DH era, I think the the Cardinals went six and two, right? But it it wasn't that they were getting such great pitching right. during that time. They were just scoring fact, a billion runs. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, oh, Noren Arnato remembered how to right. hit. Okay, well, that yeah, helps. Sh- I, I, turns I, out. I, I, doubt it, I doubt it had anything to do with Wilson Contreras DHing, unless, you know, he was on the bench so much more often that he was able to give Nolan Arnato some batting tips. That was probably yeah. it. But but really, like the the starting pitching during that span, I think – the Cardinals had a five-plus ERA from their starters and were like 27th in starting pitcher war or something. So it wasn't like they moved Wilson Contreras to DH and suddenly everyone started pitching well. Yeah. The pitching problem was what we thought it right. was, which is that the pitchers weren't that right. great. <laughs> right. So that part didn't change. Right. So maybe it would look like, oh, straight genius, the Cardinals suddenly started winning. But it wasn't because of the thing that purportedly Contreras was hurting with, hurting not that they acknowledged that he was hurting it because they were like, we're not losing games because of Wilson Contreras catching. However, we are going to stop Wilson Contreras from catching. Yeah, it's just such a strange episode. Yeah, the whole thing was so bizarre, too, because, you know, coming into the season, we anticipated that their pitching would be kind of shaky at at a minimum. And yeah, and we understood that if there's a knock on Contreras, it's that the defense is often wanting, right? And when you combine those things, it seemed like it had the potential to be a little, at least a little bit combustible. I remember when we did our preview, we asked about the defense in particular, like what are, what is giving them comfort that they are going to be able to, you know, sort of move this around in a way that's meaningful. So it it just it seemed like okay, you surely you know what your potential like pitfalls are, right? Like, you know, the places on the roster where if everything goes, I I wasn't even going to say if everything breaks bad, if everything goes kind of the way you expect it to, that, you know, you're going to have problems. So be prepared to talk about that in a way that doesn't make it sound like, you know, different factions of your roster want to murder one another. Yeah. Right. And then, and then, and then Ben, they have the, they have all the stuff happen with Tyler O'Neill, and we're like, okay, they, surely they've gotten that out of their system, right? Like, they know that they could, and not that I want to encourage teams to lie to the media, but that they could, you know, maybe finesse this a little bit better and save themselves some pain. And they're like, no, we're we're uninterested in doing that. In fact, we would like mm-hmm. to make it even worse because this guy definitely sticking around for a long time. It was so bizarre. Right. What an odd. It really was. What an odd <laughs> bit of business. And again, just a team that is typically almost antiseptic in its lack yeah. of mess. And then this time they're like, no, no. <laughs> Bring the mess. It's like they're having all the mess out there once. Yeah, Yeah. right. It's like we can't buy a Corvette because we're a baseball team and that's not how midlife crises manifest. But you know (laughs) what we can do? Be very messy. Yeah. And I talked to Will about maybe it was just that they were appeasing their pitchers. If their pitchers were up in arms for some reason, they just had Yachty withdrawal and they didn't like throwing to Contreras. Maybe it was just like, well, there's one Wilson Contreras and there are a bunch of pitchers. So maybe it was just, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few kind of thing. And they just sort of said, fine, you know, pitchers outnumber the catcher. So so we'll give them what they want. And I don't know, like 
That hasn't really been confirmed, but there was a, a report. Now, caveat supply, this was a Bob Nightingale USA Today report, but <laughs> he did cite a high-ranking Cardinals official mm-hmm. who he said told USA T- Today Sports that the reason was quite simple, that the starting pitchers told management they simply no longer wanted to pitch to Contreras. So that was the report from Nightingale. Now, it it sounds like, now I'm reading a post-dispatch story, that Contreras just kind of put his foot down, that, you know, he met with people. He he had a meeting with Flaherty and, and Wainwright. He had a meeting with the Cardinals brass. He said, I told them that I'm ready to catch. I'm not just going to be a DH. For me, it's really hard to just be a DH when I know that I can be behind the plate. So it, it sounds like, you know, he kind of threw his weight around a little bit, probably. And he also said... And and I think he's handled this about as well as you could handle yeah. it. I mean, he hasn't come out and, and blasted anyone. Yeah. Like, it's clear that he wasn't pleased, but he kind of kept it in the clubhouse in a way that, that maybe the Cardinals didn't so much. But he was asked if he has made changes to his preparation, and he said— <laughs> No. <"It's> all, <laughs> no, yeah, basically no. He said, no. it's all the same. I don't think I had to change anything. It's my game. There were a couple suggestions the pitchers made about the target, a little lower, a little higher, things like that makes them better, which is cool. Nothing more than that. And I'll link to Noah Woodward, who was a guest on the show not long ago. He did a little piece looking at Wilson Contreras' targets and noted that, yeah, maybe there are times when he sets the target in sure. sort of a strange way, like on sure. Rio, he'll set up outside the zone, and maybe that makes it harder for pitchers to throw a strike there, or maybe he's set up too close to the zone when the pitcher's ahead and should be throwing more outside the zone. So there are little things like that that sure. potentially he could tweak that you could have legitimate gripes with but <laughs> it was it just seemed like such an overreaction and i like that he was just like yeah no i, I didn't do anything, didn't different. Do anything it's, different. You know, it's just like he kind of stuck to his guns i mean he's just like you know i deserve to catch and they caved they acquiesced i guess or they just decided that this was such bad pr for them that it was making them look worse to stick with this than it it would be to just go back on this resolution yeah like i don't think that anyone is is making the claim that Wilson Contreras is like a defensively perfect or even ideal catcher. Like we mm-hmm. we have noted the the flaws in his defense, which, you know, again, we we were aware of coming into this offseason, and I'm sure the Cardinals were aware of coming into this offseason. But it's like you look at, you know, you look at our, our, our roster resource payroll pages. And guess who's a free agent after this year? Not Wilson Contreras. Guess who's yeah. a free agent after this year? Many of the pitchers who complained mm-hmm. about him. Like, on some level, I'm sure someone in the Cardinals front office is like, what are we doing here? Like, this guy's going to yeah. be on our team until at least twenty, the end of the 2027 season. Like, we, we got to figure this out. This isn't a tenable situation for us. And they're going to have to do so much to replace their rotation this offseason. And I'm sure that they want this kind of nonsense, like, sorted out before they go out in the market and try to do that, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. it just seems, again, such mess. Right. Yeah. I, I guess the positive for him, other than the fact that he gets to catch again now, is that it kind of reflected well on him how he handled it. It it made yeah. everyone else involved look worse than it did Wilson Contreras, even though he was the one who was sort of being thrown under the bus. Yeah. And, 
since then, it, it seems like pitchers are going out of their way to compliment him and talk about how great a job yeah. he's doing. And, and Jack Flaherty say, yeah, you know, I was uh, never talking about Contreras. I was uh, frustrated with myself and he did such a wonderful job on Monday, et cetera, et cetera. But Cardinals fans really backed him. It seemed like they were frustrated, not with his play, but with the way the team was treating him. So yeah. he sort of emerged from this kind of looking like the the bigger person. Yeah. And and also like an adult in the room. Yeah, right. Yeah. So so maybe not the worst thing from his perspective, although yeah. I'm sure it was quite awkward and uncomfortable and, yeah. and annoying to be the subject of that. And who knows if it poisons the well with that relationship long term or if it's just water under the bridge and they all move past it. And if they play better and continue to play right. well as a team, that will obviously go yeah. a long way towards smoothing things over. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that that will depend as much on the amount of success they have in the next little bit as it will on any actual sort of uh, persistent interpersonal nonsense. Um, right. I don't, it's not as if, you know, you start winning and then you're like, actually, I realized that guy's my best friend. I was mistaken, <laughs> but you probably, you know, you can always put up with work annoyance better when things are going well in the aggregate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the little things tend to bother you more when everything else is falling down around you. It's like, well, yeah. he keeps microwaving fish and we're behind budget and my sales are down. So I can, you know, probably fixate more comfortably on the fish thing. So I'm going to mm-hmm. fixate on the fish thing. It felt like yeah. them fixating on the fish thing, Ben. Yes. Yeah, it did. But don't and microwave I, fish at work. Like, w- no, aren't we past this as a civilization? I mean, like, I haven't had to deal with it in a really long time. But, you know, <laughs> I, I remember it. I remember it happening when I worked in an office. And, like, that wasn't so long ago. So. Yeah. No, not great office etiquette. No, but at the same time, you also had Zach Gallen, who leads all major leaguers in Fangraphs war, not just pitchers, but all of them. Yeah, he he kind of uh, he took a a little shot at the Cardinals. You know, he was recounting how uh, when he was in the Cardinals minor league system briefly, they had these uh, quote unquote voluntary off season workouts. Which I I hate. I hate the like voluntary meetings and voluntary workouts. It's like if I have to go, just tell me that. If not, then no, (laughs) unless I think it's going to be helpful. But he kind of got pressured into ultimately attending those and and he didn't go to some for a while and he felt like at least that may have hurt his standing in the organization so he he went and uh he said i got to the exit meeting and they're like yeah you didn't really have to be there thanks for coming down though so the cardinals made this whole big stink about me coming down and on the way home they traded me i guess they weren't too happy about me not wanting to go to the winter workout camp and you know he said like players don't get paid Paid. for those and he said if you know the Cardinals, you know they have their certain ways about how they go about some things. It's the the famous Cardinals way, right? And so mm-hmm. many teams have their own way. And the Cardinals way is famous because uh, the Cardinals famous and they've had a lot of success and maybe their way has been codified and has been around a lot longer. And when the Cardinals are doing well, which usually they are, then people attribute success to that. 
And when they're scuffling as they were to start the season, then people maybe look askance at the Cardinals way and say, is this costing them in certain respects? So it's really all about how your team is is going as a whole. But yeah, yeah maybe there is a little bit of, you know, conforming to the Cardinals way. And if Wilson Contreras wasn't conforming to the catching way that Yadier Molina had made so successful, then maybe he wasn't going to fit into the box that they were trying to put him in. But he's back, and Zach Gallen is uh, dominating for the Diamondbacks. So, so good. He's just yeah. uh, he's so good and so fun to watch. I have a I have a Zach Gallen bobblehead now. I was, oh, nice. Yeah, my God, out of a Diamondbacks game, Ben. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do. So I want to. Uh, I don't want to let the Cardinals off the hook for their way. I want to um, just give everyone grief. This was part of our conversation when we were discussing the silliness of minor leaguers not being paid year-round because it it clearly affects your standing in the organization, right? It gets, it gets put into that broad makeup bucket that we all, I think, are increasingly sort of looking askance at and being like, what are we really talking about when we're talking about that? Mm-hmm. Um, and if it can affect your standing in the organization and the expectation is that you're there, you should get paid for it. Controversial mm-hmm. take. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. So I did want to say, I'm just looking at the, the leaderboard mm. and thinking about catchers mm. and catchers named Contreras. Sean Murphy, very close to the top of yeah. that war leaderboard as well. Yeah. In fact, uh, I think he, tra- he trails only Gallon and his teammate, Ronald Acuna, in... NL war, Mm -hmm. and he is seventh in MLB war with Mm -hmm. the 2.1 as we speak on Tuesday. And just assessing that offseason trade, Mm. which we talked about so much this winter, you know, we were all kind of uh, wondering, like, the A's traded the best player in this deal, but also it seems like maybe the Brewers got the second best player in this Mm -hmm. deal. William Contreras is tied for the war lead on the Milwaukee Brewers right now. He's tied with Christian Yelich, who is, you know, he's having a he's having a fine year, Christian Yelich. Like he's he's not having, you know, otherworldly Christian Yelich. It's it's weird. Other than that, like two season, you know, year long period, it, it wasn't even like two full years. It was like 13 months or something that Christian <laughs> Yelich was like the best player in baseball. Yeah. Other other than that, when he had like a 170 WRC plus for a while and was like a seven win player. If we forgot that ever happened, <laughs> then yeah. he would he'd look quite consistent and like a solid good player, you know. Yeah. He's he's been good. Like he's like last year, he's been a little bit above average at the plate and he's always a good base runner and a good stealer and he's uh, going to give you pretty good defense too, like, you know, good player. Yeah, but in left and left now. Yes, that is true. In but left now. It's almost like he's he's the victim of his extreme success for a season or two there where he became the best player of baseball. Now everything he does is a disappointment. Yeah. Whereas and before that, I guess it was kind of like, can he be better than this? Even though he was like a five, six win player yeah. for the Marlins at times, like really good player. But it, it seemed like there was more and there was more for a while. Anyway, he's tied for the Brewers war lead with William Contreras, who has been really good. So. Two of the the three headliners in that trade, the catchers, they are basically leading their respective teams or very close to it, right? Yeah. You know, either second or, or tied for first. And Esteori Ruiz, you know, he's not as productive as, as those guys were. He's third in war on the A's, which... Yeah, it feels... Know, 
Yeah. Feels not great, probably. <laughs> no. So, but like, you know, I guess at least according to fan graphs, it depends on the defensive metric. But but he's been a positive contributor. You know, he's been a league average hitter. Stealing and, a bunch of bases. Yeah, leading the majors, I yeah. believe, with 19 steals now. So, look, if he could be a league average hitter and a league leading base dealer and give you decent defense i mean the the metrics are sort of you know he's he's negative 9 according to drs in center yeah. field this year but he's zero in outs above average so I, I don't know how much of that is arm or what right but yeah that's a pretty big disparity yeah but, it's a wide gap even yeah. even this early that feels right wide. Yeah. So if he could even just hold his own at the plate, because the concern was like, he's going to get the bat knocked out of his hands yeah. and he'll have no power, right? And, you know, he hasn't hit for a lot of power, but if he could be a league average hitter and a league leading base dealer and a decent center fielder, yeah, that, that's a good player. You know, yeah. like, I, I don't know if that's uh, the headliner that you should get back for Sean Murphy, but no. but it's good. It's like a productive big right. leaguer. It, it'd be kind of cool if, if all three of those guys ended up leading their respective teams in war this year. I don't know if that has ever happened. I'm, I'm sure it has happened many times that players traded for each other would, would lead their respective rosters, but a three team trade, I don't know whether that's happened. That'd yeah. be kind of cool. It would so, be cool. Not that I wish ill upon Brent Rooker, who is leading the ace in Warren, has been one that? of the best stories in baseball. How just, about that? Yeah, just like a, a classic, almost like a, a throwback to the A's, like finding free talent guys, you know, yeah. who like just were minor league mashers and maybe dismissed as as quad A, quad a guys. And then the A's really gave them a chance where no one else would. And, and then they raked. I mean, it's sort of that same story, right? Where Rooker was with the Padres. He was with the Royals. The A's got him off waivers from the Royals just in November, you know, like the Royals, the Royals could use good hitters yeah, and sure good could. players in general. And yeah, Brent Rooker has been fantastic at, at 28 years old. So, and, and he was, you know, not quite this good in the minors, obviously, that you would think he'd be this kind of major league player where he's like leading the majors in home runs and slugging percentage and OPS and OPS plus as we speak. So I don't know if he can keep that up or whether eventually like fewer balls will go over the fence yeah. and and the swing and miss will come back to bite him right but but it seems like he could at least be a a decent slugger type and the A's just need anyone who's good but I'm just saying I hope that he keeps it up but also it'd be cool if Esteri Ruiz were good enough that he caught up with Rooker and, yeah. and led his team too that'd be fun I just always feel so bad for guys involved in those traits because it's not Ruiz's fault right like nothing mm -hmm. about this is his fault and he's doing the best he can he looks great like the mm -hmm. you know he he looks strong he looks good in the body i was watching them last night because the mm -hmm. d-backs were playing them boy the d-backs got broadcast got a lot of mileage out of the attendance <laughs> Coliseum oh last yeah night. it was um, down to what 2000 right yeah under 2100 they, yeah they mostly did a, a good job of um knowing who the villain of that story was to yes. be clear i don't want to disparage that booth unnecessarily mm -hmm. but um they sure talked about it a lot um yeah, like he's, uh, you know, he, he seems like a competent big leaguer. Part of his profile is super fun, right? The stolen base thing is super exciting. And mm -hmm. I think um, particularly on a team that is giving its 
fans so little to cheer mm-hmm. about. Like, storm bases are fun and cool, and so that's nice. And, you know, there are some good stories on that A's team, despite them being just, like, mm. unforgivably bad um, mm-hmm. in the aggregate. But it's hard to see any of those when, you know, the thing you look for at the ballpark isn't the guys on the field, but the signs that the fans are bringing. <laughs> um, but uh, Sean Murphy, sure good. William Contreras, mm-hmm. Good defender now. Good job, mm-hmm. Brewers. They've, yeah, um, Brewers seem to have a knack for that. Yeah, they seem to be helping. There might be a, a piece forthcoming at Fangraphs later this week mm-hmm. about his defense, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so keep yeah. an eye out for that, Brewers the fans. Omar Narvaez <laughs> transformation yeah. molds. But yeah, it, I think Brooker, like, he seems like kind of a come-out-of-nowhere guy, but he was a first-round pick, yeah. right? It's not ancient history. It's 2017, right. and he second-to-last pick in the first round, but still, first-rounder. And he won the SEC Triple Crown. Mm-hmm. He was a top 100 guy yeah. at least one year, according to Baseball America, toward the bottom of the top 100. But still, he was on there. Productive college just, bat for sure. Yeah. And, and he hit in the minors. And yeah. I always root for guys who hit in the minors to get their shot and yeah. convert it in the majors. And I guess that's the one plus of a team being as terrible as the A's is that they might give an extended audition to someone like that or like hand them a job, you know, just because they've traded everyone else. And it's like, well, how about Brent Rooker? We'll pick him up from waivers and we'll just give him a shot. Yeah. And, you know, he'll, he'll make the league minimum and, you know, yeah. but, but a guy like that, he needs playing time. And sometimes it might come in a place where no one is coming to the park to see you, but he's still gotten a a lot of acclaim and attention around the majors. So always, happy for someone like that yeah i mean like it's for a cynical reason and i think that we are right to kind of keep our eyes on the prize when it comes to that piece but yeah you got waiver claims you got rule five guys you know there's there again there are good stories here it's just that it's impossible to divorce those stories from the bigger story of the Oakland A's. And so, you know, you, you, you struggle, I think, or we struggle a little bit in how to talk about this stuff because you want to acknowledge those individual achievements. And you're right that, you know, the, the A's aren't dedicating payroll for the most part, but if you're a guy who's used to playing in the minors and now you're making the big league minimum for a whole season, like, that's life altering in terms of your experience of it, even if it isn't generational money like you might see a free agent bring in. Um, but I don't, I don't want that to obscure the bigger story because the story of this A's team when the season is done isn't going to be Brent Rooker, right? It's not going to be whatever Ruiz becomes, and it's not going to be Noda or any of these guys. It's going to be, you know, John Fisher, and that needs to be the story. But but, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the, these guys famously at this point don't get to decide where they play, at least the ones that we're talking about right now. So I don't want to give them short shrift just because their boss sucks. A lot of people's bosses <laughs> suck, you know, that's not <laughs> unique to the A's. So it's mm-hmm. a tricky thing, Ben. Yeah, we'll we'll see which which binding agreement with Las Vegas real estate people ends up actually being binding. It's <laughs> how like many more how, binding agreements will there be? How 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 do you <laughs> not have? You know, this isn't like when the rest of us have like a small administrative task that we forget for a couple months, and then we're like, oh crap, I still got to do that. Like you know, mm-hmm. I have to take my ballot to the ballot box today, but um. 
you know, don't you want, don't you want that um, sorted? Don't you want those eyes dotted and T's crossed before mm-hmm. you're like, hey, peace out, Oakland? It's just like it's not going to happen. But wouldn't it be the funniest thing if the city of Oakland was like, we're not renewing your lease, and then Vegas is like, what are you talking about? We didn't have anything set, and then they what? They have to go play at their AAA park, <laughs> right. nicer yeah. facility. Mm-hmm. Oh man, what a mess. Yeah, their their spring training field is nicer than the Coliseum. Hohokam is nice. And they have a good beer garden up top now. So, you know, mm-hmm. fun facts from Meg to you. Brent Rooker, in my mind, is a left-handed hitter. In reality, he is not. Mm. I just I've kind of conflated him with Jack Cust, I think, just because Interesting. Jack, Jack Cust was also a late first round pick who had been with the Padres and then in his age 28 season, just like Brent Rooker, finally got a starting job in the majors and hit quite well, right? And and was sort of the same, you know, like strikeout and power and patience mm-hmm. type of guy fit in that A's mold. But Rooker, not actually a left-handed hitter, but in my mind, he is, he should be. And so it, it's... <laughs> It's not that he is uh, broken out because he's like taken advantage of of no shift or fewer right. extreme shifts. Although I, I saw a post from Tom Tango on his site that actually began with you. It it quoted you. Me? And yeah. Me, Meg? You, Meg. Oh, yeah. What the, did I do? The, <laughs> the first sentence of the post says, a few years ago, noted baseball thinker, Meg Rally. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Eloquently presented the case on national TV. It all depends on what aesthetic of baseball you want. Oh, yeah. That was the time I went on MLB Network and made Brian Kenny talk about aesthetics. And then I was like, I guess I can retire now. I've accomplished my goals. (laughs) Right. So he used that as a a jumping off point to talk about the effect of the defensive positioning restrictions. Right. And what he did. (laughs) It's a good reason to be brought up. Yeah. Noted baseball thinker. Hmm. You, uh, you, he looked at every left-handed hitter since 2020 and split their performance uh, between left-handed pitchers and right-handed pitchers. And he looked at the 2020 to 22 performance in the the before bucket and then the 2023 after and then weighted it properly so that certain players aren't overrepresented, et cetera. So he found that of those left-handed hitters, the previous WOBA, weighted on base average in the shift era was 321. And those same players, current WOBA in the post shift or at least over shift era, also 321. So he said, yes, after all the massive change in defensive alignments, we simply get back to where we always were. It's just that now, well, it's about the aesthetics. It wasn't about getting more offense or less offense. It was a pardon the pun shift in aesthetics or restoration anyway. He noted that for righties, he did the same thing for right-handed hitters. And as he's written, as I've written, the righty shifts always seem to be odd and overused because they never seem to work that well. No, they didn't. And so he did find that right-handed hitters have actually suffered from the shift ban, which is, mm. you know, it's kind of ironic. It's like you're limiting the defense and right-handed hitters are hurting. If anything, Brett Rooker should be t- doing worse because there's no shift, right? So right-handed hitters are not benefiting from that. So the right-handed hitters as a group went from 331, their previous WOVA, to 321. So he found that basically the rules saved the teams from making the mistake of shifting too much on right-handed hitters. So... 
essentially he's saying that like for lefties, you know, people were forecasting, oh, it's going to be a big boost for them. And and basically as a group, it just hasn't seemed to do anything. Mm. And the effects have largely seemed muted. And, and you can break it down and look at BABIP and you can look at uh, BABIP on ground balls or by certain handedness. However you slice it, it seems to be a fairly small difference. And so when Tom says it was never about getting more offense or less offense, it was about aesthetics. I I guess, you know, ostensibly it was about more offense, right? Like that was definitely part of the the stated rationale. Yes. But I guess part of it also was just like, we want baseball to look like it used to look and we want people to get less frustrated about hits being taken away by the shift that they used to think would be hits and now it's not a hit and then they get mad about it because uh, you didn't have to, you didn't used to have someone standing there, right? So I guess maybe ultimately it has turned out largely to be about aesthetics and and we'll see if they decide well this wasn't enough and we need to bring in the pie slice rule and we need further restrictions but thus far it, it doesn't seem to have done a whole lot other than just that aesthetic takeaway of certain things are hits that wouldn't have been and yeah. vice versa yeah it feels it feels at least a, a little revisionist to say that it wasn't about you know, increasing offense. Like, I think that that mm-hmm. was a an understood, if not stated, goal on the league's part. Um, but I, I think the point that it is also about, you know, inspiring particular kinds of offense is well taken. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're going to quote a noted baseball thinker, <laughs> yeah. no one who thinks about aesthetics as much as I do. It was yeah. so windy that day. And I was just... <laughs> hair down, you know, at the mercy of the elements, got a little mm-hmm. microphone. I couldn't couldn't tuck my hair behind my ear because I was worried about dislodging the microphone. I didn't know how to fix it, Ben. Mm-hmm. TV's really intimidating. Don't know about yeah. TV as a pursuit. Seems seems challenging in a way I'm uninterested yeah. in. Hmm. Live outdoor TV seems particularly challenging. It's just like why you put it by the pool, though, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I get your – you're in Vegas, and they do famously have pools there, but it was December and very windy. You know, Jeff got to wear a sweater. He was, like, uh-huh. all bundled up. He looked like he was an ad for, like, you know, some <laughs> resort on a moor somewhere. And here I am, my little <laughs> normal shirt, no sweater, hair uh, bluster. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Clearly it left a big impression on me. Yeah. Yeah. My my complaint, I guess, was also sort of aesthetic in that just I, I didn't like the limitations being imposed. Oh, I thought you were about to talk about the aesthetic of oh, my hair a- and be like, yeah, <laughs> you're probably right. No, I, I'm not much of a stylist, so I don't really have any <laughs> tips for you in that arena. But, but, but yeah, my objection was always uh, partly just that it was addressing not really the root cause. Like if, if you think that it's going to indirectly make people have a more contact-oriented approach because putting the ball in play is more beneficial, eh, it doesn't really seem like that's going to do much. And, and it doesn't seem like it has thus far. So you really need to address the root of the problem, which is the pitchers throwing so hard and throwing so much better than they ever have. But also, I just sort of philosophically objected to the limitations. But in practice, it's it's definitely not something I'm up in arms about routinely. You know, like it, it, it maybe still rubs me the wrong way on some level, but not in a, a visceral way. Like I'm actively getting annoyed about it. So yeah. I, 
I feel like it's just kind of much ado about nothing to yeah. this point. And if it makes some people happy that certain balls in play are hits now, fine, I guess, you know, like the some effect of it has been so small as to be difficult to measure, at least thus far. Yeah, I think that that is largely right. I mean, it's funny because I think we all wondered coming into this, uh, will this do anything? And mm-hmm. we thought, maybe not. And mm-hmm. then, yeah. you know, and, or it won't do most of the things. Right. And that's kind of gone under the radar, I guess, in a way that maybe MLB wouldn't be that unhappy about just because the pitch clock effects are so obvious and so pronounced and to a lesser but still great extent, the stolen base uptick, right? That no one's really talking all that much about the shift stuff. You know, like if that had been the only big rule and they were like, hey, this is what we're doing to make the game more exciting now. And then it just kind of landed with a thud and it didn't seem to make much of a difference. Then I guess that might have been a story. Whereas now it's so overshadowed in a largely positive way by those other changes that did have the intended effects and very dramatic and obvious and also not just affecting the scoring environment, but also aesthetically speaking, right? So they had aesthetic dimensions too. So that stuff has gotten so much attention that no one's really talking about, oh yeah, the the shift thing, that that doesn't really seem to do all that much really because it was just, you know, kind of an afterthought because of those other things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Hey, Ben, I can't believe that we've gotten this far speaking of aesthetics and how things look without Mm. talking about the dumbest controversy of our time. Oh, which one? There are so many. We've already talked about Wisin Contreras on this episode. <laughs> you don't You don't want to talk about the phenomena of peaking? You don't want to oh. talk about peakers who peak? Aaron Judgegate, yeah. Peaking, peaking, yes. You can't say Aaron Judgegate. You can't. Here's a, here's a tangent rant. Are you ready for mm-hmm. a tangent rant? Sure. People don't. Stop it with gate to everything. Okay. The water gate, <laughs> gate is a, was, it's a specific uh, place. It's fifty years ago. Yeah. Well okay. my issue, it was dumb it was dumb when people started affixing it to controversies mm. much more temporally proximate to Watergate than than uh-huh. this. Um, I'm not yelling at you. I mean, I am yelling at you, but I'm not yelling at you, Ben. Yeah, I'm just a proxy for everyone else. Yeah, it's like with, it's yeah. a it's a specific. It's not a gate related controversy. It's a <laughs> it's a name of a place. It's a hotel. It's a, anyway. I just I am just saying that it has always bothered me, and mm-hmm. I know I'm in the minority, but that doesn't mean I'm wrong, Ben. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean yeah. I'm wrong. I just think we have. I I find myself caught between my obligations to the podcast to mention, you know, relevant and timely baseball news and my deep mm-hmm. desire for people to never talk about this ever again. <laughs> and where, where, what do we do except temp- briefly, just like a little sprinkle mm-hmm. of talking about it, which is that guys peak, guys peak all mm-hmm. the time. Guys, yep. they're constantly peaking. They're, they're peaking back at the catcher to try to see where the catcher is setting up. They, in this particular case seemed like they were peeking back at a catcher who was setting up very early, you know, mm-hmm. perhaps indicating what what and where 
of the pitch, you know, they mm -hmm. are looking at the base coaches to see if the base coaches have anything to offer them in terms of, um, you know, a, a sign that would indicate what ball is coming. Sometimes they're looking at the dugout because sometimes those guys are figuring things out. And all of that is totally normal <laughs> and within the context of baseball. And I understand that the that the banging scheme broke all of our brains. I get yeah. I understand. And I understand why now we look at things and we see shadows and shadowy figures and i'm not saying that the yankees aren't cheating i have no idea i don't think that this is indicative of that any which way because guys peek all the time they're always peeking you know they're peekers mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. anyway that's what happened with the peeking in my opinion and you have pitch calm just use pitch calm what are we doing why yeah <laughs> i'm i'm not as anti the gate construction as you are i, I think <laughs> let's talk about the really important thing which is the <laughs> watergate scandal yeah i think it's kind of useful just to be able to append gate to something and convey that it's a scandal although i think we probably over apply it yeah. in the sense that like we we got some loose gates free swinging watergate, gates yeah watergate was a pretty big one you know as as far as scandals go <laughs> And so if we're we're applying the gate to Aaron Judge sort of uh, looking at the Yankees bench while he was hitting. It's not quite like, you know, the same national and international import probably as the Watergate scandal. No. But but I'm I'm with you on the takeaway here. And I couldn't tell exactly what was happening. It it seemed like, you know, someone on Reddit was uh, breaking it down and suggesting that maybe the catcher, Alejandro Kirk for the Blue Jays, was going like one knee down, but yeah. depending on the pitch type, it yes. would be a different knee, yes. right? And so you could maybe tell us this is going to be a fastball or a breaking ball by which knee he mm. was putting down. Sure. And if that was, in fact, what was happening, well, that's something that Aaron Judge can't really see while he is in the batter's box facing forward, alert to the pitcher, as they say. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, there is such a thing as peaking, but it would be extremely obvious if he were to fully turn around and, <laughs> and see at that point. <laughs> I can just imagine. What are you doing back there? Yeah. <laughs> What's your so, plan? <laughs> so if Kirk was doing that, then maybe <laughs> that's something that the Yankees bench would be better positioned to see. And so Aaron Judge could just, uh, you know, kind of shiftily look over there and get some cue to say, oh, right knee down, left knee down. And then he would know what was coming. I don't know. Watching this in real time seemed like it would be tough because at least on a pitch or two that I watched, like the knee was going down pretty late, like yeah. as the pitcher was like getting into his delivery. So I don't really know whether there would be time to look over there and pick up on that sign and for that sign to be given and, and then to collect yourself to hit. But maybe, maybe that's what it was, or maybe it was something else. Judge, when he was asked about it, at first he sort of feigned not knowing what the question was about or maybe legitimately didn't. And then he said that it was about chirping from the dugout, like the Yankees were up 6 nothing, Yeah. And he was saying that they were still like chirping over there. Aaron Boone got thrown out of that game, right? He, he gets ejected a lot. He does get ejected <laughs> for, a lot. For someone who seems like fairly mild-mannered usually, at least in interviews, not always, but, but on the field, like he, he gets heated sometimes. Like he has... I looked recently, he has one of the higher ejection rates in history yeah. for any manager with a, a large sample. Anyway, 
judge said that it was about like the bench was chirping and he didn't really want them to be chirping at, at that time in the game or something like that, which could be true or it could just be a cover story. But if it was just peeking, yeah, that's that's all well and good. That's within the bounds, right? And and teams are entitled to police that to the extent that they can, sure. you know? And, and there's kind of, it's often with unwritten rules. It's right. uh, about trying to dissuade people from doing things that would benefit them and hurt you. So in this right. case, they don't want Aaron Judge peaking. Well, the Blue Jays can talk about it and their manager can bring it up and say, yeah, and suggest that he was doing something semi underhanded and that he hadn't seen a hitter do that sort of thing before. And maybe you put pressure on Judge. You know, it was the first game of a series, right? And so you're going to be facing this team and you don't want them to do that. Now, if it was that, if they were picking up on a tendency that was that obvious, then you talk to your catcher, you right. know, and and you probably do it privately. You know, don't come out and say, Alejandro <laughs> Kirk, no longer our catcher. He's going to be an outfielder now. <laughs> no, but just that would uh, be great. Yeah, just just privately address that. Yeah. Seems like a, an easy change. But yeah, that, that that's within the bounds, obviously, if you're not doing anything electronic. Right. But I understand why in this day and age, you know, post-banging scheme, yep. which is such a great phrase because we don't need to add gate to it because we have banging scheme. Right. right. We don't need we don't need to say Astros gate. Right. We should have more we should have more schemes. I mean, to be clear, we shouldn't have actually more schemes, but when schemes present themselves, we should label them as such. We yes. should address them as schemes mm-hmm. um, because it provides more information. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. more descriptive. Right. So this was given life because everyone's always uh, scrutinizing everything. And then I guess it's healthy to have that scrutiny because uh, an absence of scrutiny right. was, at least on MLB's part, was what led to the banging scheme in the first place or yeah. enabled it. And, you know, the Yankees have some history of uh, some types of illegal sign stealing, right? Sure. And. So yeah, yeah, it, it, it makes sense to look at these things. But if it's if that's all it is, then it's just the normal kind of gamesmanship and picking up on pitch tipping. I guess usually you're talking about the pitcher tipping pitches, right. not the catcher tipping pitches, but both can happen. Right, which is why they peak. I just think it's funny that a group of, in general, I'll speak in general here and not say anything particular about any of the Blue Jays or Aaron Judge, but like that a, a group of men who seem very invested in like, being men have like the same manners and standards and little nitpicky bits of nonsense as like people living in Regency England. It's just funny, but it Mm -hmm. isn't a scandal. So now we have Mm -hmm. done our duty and we can be done talking about it. Yeah. Probably didn't help that Aaron Judge hit two homers in that game and and hit a homer. You know? He does that. He, he is that. famously hits a lot of home runs. <laughs> but yes, the fact that he hit a home run, I guess, in at least one of the plate appearances where he was seen to be peaking. And I, this was something the Blue Jays broadcast picked up on. Right. And they should mention it. Like, it was sure. notable. It was unusual. It was attention getting. So eye-catching that, that his eyes were doing that. And I think he he seemed to be like talking to the bench when he was on the on deck circle, kind of comparing notes about it. So yeah, it seemed like there was something going on there, but doesn't mean that there was anything illegal. Untoward. It's just, yeah, right. And him hitting a homer that 
kind of, you know, if you're inclined to think, oh, they're cheating, then the fact that he hits a homer right after that might confirm your suspicion. But yes, uh, famously, a man who hits a lot of homers, more homers than anyone, in fact. Yeah, well, not more homers than Barry Bonds, but well, no. many <laughs> Just other. last year, specifically. Yeah, yeah. there's <laughs> yes. <a> <laughs> Yeah. Are the Yankees still in uh, last place <laughs> these days? I, I think they are, right? It's uh, – that's – you know, like I, I look at that division now and we've talked plenty They are about, not – as of this oh, morning, the hey, Red Sox. They have leapfrogged the Red Sox. Yeah, the you know? Red Sox. Well, that's because, you know, everyone is out here talking about big tall man and they should be talking about the big dumper who mm, hit yes, a home yes. run one – from each side of the plate, which was the first mm-hmm. time a catcher had done that at Fenway in 10,000 years. Or, you know, mm-hmm. it was a fun fact because it involved a guy who we routinely refer to as the big dumper. That's Cal right. Raleigh for people who have, like, a normal relationship to nicknames <laughs> and don't own a big dumper T-shirt. Mm-hmm. I have a big dumper T-shirt, Ben. Oh, nice. Yeah. Huh. It's ridiculous. And I <laughs> yeah. cannot wait to wear it when the Mariners come to play the Diamondbacks in July. <laughs> <sighs> so the Yankees are now ahead of the Red Sox, who got off to a, a strong and surprising start. Yeah. And uh, yes, have flattened. And then their pitching fell lately. all the way apart. Yeah. I mean, the, the pitching was never good. But it's <laughs> been, it's worse now. Yes. Yeah. I went on a Red Sox podcast last week to talk about it. They were like, can we, where do we, are there pitchers somewhere? Can we we have some pitchers? I didn't have any great answers for them. I suggested that they they trade for Rich Hill again because that's their trademark move. But I really like, you look at the, that division and, you know, as historic a start as the Rays are off to, Mm -hmm. they're not ahead of their rivals by that much. And they're quite hurt now. And they're quite hurt. So for a team that has seemed so dominant and has been dominant, yeah, like kind of looking vulnerable, yeah. you know, like they're only four and a half ahead of the Orioles. They're six and a half ahead of the Blue Jays. They're seven and a half ahead of the Yankees. And they have basically an entire starting rotation on the IL yeah. at this point. And like for serious reasons, I mean, right. hopefully you get Tyler Glasnow back sometime soon. But they started the season with Shane Boss on the IL and then Jeffrey Springs has Tommy John. And then the most recent victim is Drew Rasmussen, who also has uh, the the feared flexor tendon. Yeah. So all sorts of injury issues. The bullpen has been bad, right? I mean, yeah. I think by some metrics, I, I think Joe Sheehan cited like XFIP, you know, with sort of a smaller sample with a bullpen. But like by that, they were better than only the Oakland A's and they're signing Zach Littell and Jake Diekman. They're like, anyone right. who's available, please, someone pitch for us. So we talk about the vaunted raised bullpen and I guess they're they're getting Pete Fairbanks back. He's just back now. Yeah, but he just came off the injured list. Really short-handed and just reaching for anyone available. So they've looked dominant. They've looked unstoppable. But I, I guess that's one reason why you kind of pump the brakes a, a little bit on teams that start so hot. Not that they've slowed down so much. I mean, they've kind of cooled off because you'd have to. They were winning every game. But they've continued to to win most of the time. But the gap has been 
narrowed and they don't look quite so imposing when you look at the roster and you have to count on the offense which is like on pace to hit the most home runs of any team ever yeah despite the ball not being quite as juiced as it was a few years ago just everyone in that offense has gotten better all of a sudden so you kind of have to hope that those guys who were playing above their past performance continue to which isn't hard to believe in some cases, but you need them to fire on all cylinders because the pitching staff is so depleted. So, yeah, yeah, you look at that team and it's like, are they going to hold on? You know, they have a 738 winning percentage right now, and yet you have some concerns just because of the losses and because the rest of right. the division is so strong. Yeah, and, you know, Jake Diekman hasn't pitched again, so we don't even get to give a FIP <laughs> update, Ben. No. I went no. to look and I was like, surely he's thrown... You know, since no, it doesn't appear to have still at mm-hmm. four, four, three, one. Um, yeah, yeah. It it's not as if the all of the parts of their roster that have been so good are like going to suddenly become bad. We might expect them to to cool a little bit. Like you don't really think they're going to hit the most home runs. I mean, maybe they will. They have Yandy Diaz, so yeah. who, mm-hmm. who am I to doubt them? But mm-hmm. um, and they are, like you said, going to get Glass now back. They're you know, I think Taj Bradley is going to start for them against the Mets tomorrow. So they do have some like reinforcements, but it is it is uh, a lot of very good pitching on the injured list in a way that is not likely to come back. And we have to hope that things are not as dire as they seem for Rasmussen because this would be his third Tommy John, and yeah. that's not a that's not a list that you really really want to be on. That's a bad. No. That's a bad list. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they are they are surprisingly vulnerable for a team that has just you know, both in terms of the results that we have seen on the field and then all of the peripheral statistics been so good. So uh, mm-hmm. the, the vulnerable, but some of the the other teams in their division, while also quite good, they have their warts, Ben, mm-hmm. you know, like um, yeah. they, they have some warts. So I don't know. And then, and then what does the peaking do? You know, how does the peaking <laughs> disrupt that division from top mm-hmm. to bottom, potentially, you know, you just don't peaking know. gate. Yeah. Right. Peaking gate. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. There are two other teams I, I've been thinking about, I guess uh, maybe we missed our chance to have the, Hey, the Red Sox, are they actually good conversation? But sometimes, you know, a team gets off to a hot start and we don't talk about it. And Cause you want to like, wait and see yeah. if it's real. Yeah, or yeah. we just don't get around to it, and it's like, should we talk about this? And then by the time we get around to it, it's like, maybe we don't even have to talk about right. this anymore because it's not a story. It's like, right. that's uh, who knows? So maybe the Red Sox will remain relevant, but they are now in last place, and they were sort of expected to be, or at least uh, quite commonly forecasted to be. But yeah. I've been looking at two other teams who have almost the, the same record to this point. The Padres at 20 and 22, and the Cubs at 19 and 22. And those two teams, different levels of expectation, right? The the Padres entered this year as the favorites, right? If, if you know, by projections, at least, and other people kind of questioning, are they going to unseat the Dodgers this year? And then the Cubs were active over the offseason, but it was still like, eh, did they do enough? Well, I'm still waiting for the Padres to play well. Yeah. <laughs> right? And part of it is that they've hit really poorly with runners in scoring position. So that's been part of it. It's just the timing has been bad. But also, like, their base runs record is their actual record. So I don't know how much they've overperformed. Yeah. Whereas you look at the Cubs, and the Cubs kind of have 
the opposite of the Marlins phenomenon that we've talked about, which is that the Marlins, you know, start the season 12 and 0 in one run games and just like every coin flip is landing their way. And so the Marlins are like four games uh, ahead of what they quote unquote deserve based on the underlying metrics and everything. They're 20 and 21. So they actually have a slightly better record than the Cubs, despite having been outscored by 47 runs on the season, whereas the Cubs have outscored their opponents by 47 runs, and they have a worse record than the Marlins do. They are six games beneath their base runs expected record. So the Cubs are in third place in the NL Central, four games back of the Brewers, one game back of the Pirates, who had their hot start and then a slump. If you gave the Cubs their base runs record instead of their actual record, then they'd be in first place in the NL Central. And the Padres, meanwhile, again, like they've been outscored by seven runs, too. So the Cubs have actually played quite well, you know, surprisingly well, if you look at just run differential and these other metrics. And they haven't been talked about a whole lot just because the record doesn't reflect that. So always drawn to records that uh, seem out of line with how the team is actually playing. And that could be encouraging, I guess, if you're a Cubs fan and you're thinking, well, the the talent will out ultimately and players are playing better and we're outscoring our opponents and eventually that will pay off and we will start beating them too. And again, they're four games back. So that's not allowed a ground to make up. Whereas, you know, the Marlins still six games back in the NL East, but also a respectable record just because they've been buoyed by all this success. Whereas the Cubs, you know, they're two and eight in one run games. So especially at this point in the season, it can be quite misleading or distorting or confusing. Or at least incomplete, right? Like it, yeah. it, it is part of the picture. And again, like those wins and losses are banked, but it doesn't really um, tell tell the full story. If I were a Cubs fan, I would be encouraged if by nothing else, you play baseball in the NL Central. And so, you know, you have a, an easier road to hoe. And I don't say that like, you know, the Brewers are playing good baseball and William Contreras is a good defender now. So who knows Mm -hmm. what they're capable of. And, you know, the Pirates have obviously cooled pretty dramatically, but, um, you know, you, you are in a situation where you, you will presumably be able to win a division crown with less, but you're also in a very competitive national league. And so better win the division because those wild card spots are likely to be claimed by other entrants like the Arizona Diamondbacks, mm-hmm. Ben. Yeah. You know? be- between the Dodgers and the Padres are the yeah. Diamondbacks. Diamondbacks. So, yeah. yeah. It's not a two team race. It's a three team race. It's a, so. it's a three team something, you know? <laughs> yeah. So we've got to do some past blasting here. I, I did just want to shout out Riley Pint making the majors. That was a kind yeah. of a cool one, right? And maybe we'll we'll get around to a meet a major leaguer yeah. sometime soon because uh, I enjoy another former first rounder yes. like Brent Rooker who went through a bunch of yeah. different directions and and retired and unretired and then finally get calls up. I mean, he was a bigger prospect than than Brent Rooker. He yeah. was like top prospect. He was and, a top prospect. And yeah, then 
Mm. He was a fourth overall pick. Yeah. And and now he's a Colorado Rocky and still with the Rockies who drafted him and, and sort of stuck with him. So that's fun. I, I don't know how long he'll be there or how well he'll pitch, but nice to see him make it after yep. deciding to come back. So, so that's a little blast from the past, I guess, but also from the present. And have you gotten the old game day notifications? Are you someone who's getting I those? I'm not getting the old game day notifications. Okay. I'm not either. I, I don't actually get any game day notifications. I've I turned them off. I I try to minimize notifications yeah. as much as possible because I have so many. So many. I can't avoid, you yeah. know, I, I get Slack ones and I get Discord ones and I get Gmail ones and just, and I want to see those and need to see at least some of those. And so I try to minimize the others that yeah. I don't necessarily need to see. So I don't have game day notifications on, but a lot of people seemingly who have had them have been getting little pass blasts, yeah. like just, just beamed to their phone notifications about like decades old games, yeah. play, play by play as if it's happening right now. And I don't know if there's any rhyme or reason to it. I, I don't know why it's happening, whether they were just updating something on the back end. Like, yeah. I know they've, I think, done promotions about this for, like, beat the streak sort of stuff. Like, I don't know, maybe, like, DiMaggio hit streak updates or something. This just seems to be sort of random. Like, it's uh, games that don't have play-by-play data or public play-by-play data, it seems like, in some cases. But I don't know if there's something that's tying them together. But it it seems, like, kind of fun. Yeah. I, I almost wish I were getting them or maybe that should be a a feature that you could opt into like give me notifications from past seasons as if they were happening right now that might be kind of a fun option a lot of them that i have seen have involved the astros i've Mm. noticed but i don't Uh know i haven't made a study of it you know i've only seen a couple of screenshots so i don't know if my sense of that is just out of whack yeah I'm not sure either. So that was one past blasty thing that happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, another past blasty thing, I I watched two documentaries, uh, just new baseball documentaries when I was not playing Tears of the Kingdom over the past several days, which mm. I was at almost all times. But I I watched these two Yankees documentaries, uh, documentaries about Yankees cultural icons, Reggie Jackson and Yogi Berra. So one of them is just called Reggie. And it came out earlier this year. It's streamable on Amazon Prime Video. And then the other is called It Ain't Over. And it's about Yogi Berra, obviously. And I think it premiered last year, but it just hit theaters this past weekend. So you can go see it at least in some limited places. And I thought that would be kind of a a fun, like double feature that I just did for fun and just wanted to give a a very quick shout out to those just because, you know, like there aren't that many new baseball movies, but there's no shortage of baseball documentaries. It seems like they're constantly baseball documentaries. So we watched and talked about the Willie Mays one. Yeah. This one, you know, these two, I I think they were interesting. They were good for Yankees fans, certainly. Interesting ties between those two players who overlapped in some ways and obviously are, are both, you know, Yankees uh, greats and legends and other teams too. But I think they were linked in the sense that they were known for October success and World Series success and also in that they were kind of like larger than life and larger than baseball characters. 
And so there were a lot of commonalities, like these documentaries showing these two players in pop culture and as pitchmen, et cetera. But kind of a, a different vibe to them, I guess, in that the Yogi one was like a lot of family involvement, you oh, know, like sure. Barra's uh, executive producing, et cetera, which, you know, isn't necessarily a good or bad thing, but it was more of a, a hackiography, I guess. Not that there's like, you know, dirty laundry about Yogi Berra that should be aired. I mean, he seems like a, a pretty uncontroversial, beloved figure, but it was very much like, you know, isn't Yogi so great? And he was great, but it was just a lot of, here's why Yogi's so great. Here's another way that Yogi's so great. But I guess every documentary has to have some reason for being, right? Like some some message, some takeaway that it has, some point that it's trying to make other than just like, uh, remember this guy, right? Which, you know, just like remember this guy can be, I guess, a good enough reason to spend an hour and a half reminiscing. But the Yogi documentary's point or message seemed to be Yogi's underrated as a player mm. because because he's overshadowed by like what a character he was. Oh. Yeah, so the the whole thing is framed like it begins and ends basically like with justice for Yogi. Yeah, so yeah, it was weirdly almost like a like a chip on the shoulder like <laughs> That's don't strange. For, yeah, it was a little bit cuz I I don't know. I definitely don't think of Yogi as like being slighted as a yeah, player. Yeah, I think people are pretty clear-eyed about him as a player yeah and it starts with uh this flashback to which i had even forgotten that this happened but in 2015 at the all-star game mlb had like a greatest living players sort of event and celebration and so there were four players it was willie mays and henry aaron and sandy koufax and johnny bench And they were, I think, like appointed by various committees and historians and so forth. And they chose those four players. And that was a few months before Yogi Berra passed away. So he was still alive at the time and I guess was, you know, slightly slighted by not being included there. So the whole documentary sort of framed around like, where was Yogi? Why wasn't Yogi included there? And I mean, yeah, I guess like he could have had a case to to be there, but no one would have been upset if, if Yogi Berra was there. I mean, I think you could make a stronger case just on a pure performance level for those four guys, whether it was peak or career. But But Yogi was great. I mean, they weren't saying like, Yogi should have been there instead of those four guys. It's yeah. just like, why wasn't it five guys instead? Why not Yogi also? Which, uh, sure, yeah, I guess sure. why not. But yeah, I, I don't find that that people think, you know, because of like the caricature, the the image of Yogi and the Yogi-isms and all of that and Yogi Bear and, and that stuff that like Yogi played into and embraced sure. like, you know, as a spokesperson, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, wrote books about his sayings and everything. So even if uh, he felt like there was too much of that at times, like he obviously embraced it and profited from it and perpetuated it to a certain extent. But in my mind, at least, I've never thought he was any less great of a player because of all that other stuff. Maybe in the mainstream, if people just know him because of 
his image and his appearance and his sayings, they might not know that he was also like an all-time great player. That's that's possible, I guess. But then most mainstream people might not know any baseball player for any reason, right? right? Even if they were really great at baseball, like some kind of larger cultural significance probably has to play into it. And he played in an era, obviously, where baseball players were bigger mainstream national celebrities. So he was known because of that. But but yeah, the whole thing was kind of like, don't sleep on Yogi being a a great player, (laughs) which, you know. We we were, I assure you, we were not do that. Rest easy. I wasn't aware that we were. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. But but sure. You know, no problem with with that. And, yeah. And look, gotcha. he was a, a D Day, and like, I mean, just a lot of yeah. things to celebrate about yeah. Yogi. So nothing wrong with that. And geez, sure. they they trotted out so many luminaries in this documentary to talk about Yogi. I mean, it wasn't just like Jeter and Mattingly and Mariano and other Yankees greats. Is you know, like Bob Costas is there, and Billy Crystal's there, and Joe Torre and Whitey Herzog and Joe Madden and Willie Randolph and Claire Smith and Joe Girardi, just like on and on. Yeah. Media people, sports people, everyone being like, yeah, Yogi was the best. <laughs> it's like, all right, yeah. The best talking head was Nick Swisher. I don't know. I don't know why <laughs> Nick Swisher was in it, really. Why was I Nick mean, Swisher in I don't it? know, but That's every now so and then, funny. it was the best. Like you would have just these people, you know, talking in these like measured, you know, stentorian tones and yeah. Costas, you know, the the ultra polished broadcaster, voice of the game type, and then Nick Swisher comes in and he's like talking about how Yogi struck out twelve times one season, and Nick Swisher's like twelve strikeouts, bro. That's unbelievable, bro. <laughs> it's like why is Nick Swisher here? Twelve strikeouts, bro. I don't even think I do that in wiffle ball. Like, you know what I mean? 117 double headers he caught. That's unbelievable. That is that's unfathomable today. Being Yogi Berra behind the dish, I'm feeling pretty good about my chances, right? Uh, Nick Swisher should be in every documentary, just like bringing that that Swisherian energy. Just Swisherian. <laughs> oh my goodness, Ben! Yeah, it was it was great. I don't know why he, he was there, other than just like <laughs> why not have that that Nick Swisher energy? But yeah. So then, so the Reggie doc was not made like I mean with his participation, obviously, but but not by him. And so it was uh, maybe a, a little like presenting more sides and maybe he just had more sides to present. But I guess the upshot of the Reggie doc was not so much about like he was a great player, too, but more about like his personality and portrayal and, and the way he was perceived and presented and presented himself and I don't know if it was doing like image rehab, but just kind of like looking at the complexity of like Reggie as a public figure, basically. And I should say one of the the bittersweet things about these documentaries and and really like a lot of these sorts of documentaries, true about the Willie Mays one we talked about too, but you know, when you're talking about these older figures and, you know, in the the Reggie doc, of course, you have a lot of Reggie, whereas in the Yogi doc, sadly, you don't have Yogi. You have archival footage of Yogi and friends and family of Yogi. Gosh, every family member of Yogi was in that movie. But, But you have a lot of people who are speaking who also are no longer with us, you know? So it's like maybe their last interviews or their last appearances. Wow. Like, in the Yogi doc, you had Vin Scully, who was in that Willie Mays doc too, I think. This was maybe like his last interview. You had Roger Angel in it also. You had Bobby Brown and Ralph Terry and Hector Lopez, the late players. All of them have died since this yeah, documentary. Geez. 
and then in in the Reggie doc, you had Henry Aaron, you had Vita Blue, who just died last week. So yeah. that's kind of like the preserving history aspect. It's yeah. Like, yeah, get get these people on record on, yeah. on camera before they can't talk about this stuff too. So yeah. so that was kind of nice. Also, sort of sad to see like Vince yeah. and Roger Angel and and miss them again. Yeah. But I think the Reggie doc, it was it was kind of like. You know, putting him in the context of the time and and talking about the racism he faced and the prejudice and everything coming up, but also like kind of juxtaposing him with these figures who were more outspoken in in sort of like a social justice race relations way. You know, it was a lot of like Muhammad Ali and Kurt Flood and Bill Russell and then like intercut with with Reggie also being outspoken, but like, you know, fighting Charlie Finley for more money and and that kind of thing, yeah. as opposed to like advocating for conditions for people on the whole. You know, it was like Jackie Robinson talking about how there should be black managers and and more people involved in leadership positions, and then kind of juxtaposing that with with Reggie advocating for himself and like advocating for himself in that way was portrayed as as being kind of a, a trailblazing thing, which mm-hmm. you know it probably was yeah. to some extent. But there was also a, an aspect of, like, he was out for himself, too, you know? Like, there was even a clip of him saying everyone's out for themselves, And, you know, talking about how, like, if you spoke as a, a black athlete, like, you were portrayed as being arrogant or self-centered, but then also acknowledging that he kind of was <laughs> arrogant, too. Yeah. So, so it was, you know, kind of complicated, I think. Like, you know, obviously, like, it was an uphill battle, but also he he made it more difficult for himself in, in some ways. So that was probably more interesting in that it wasn't pure hackyography and wasn't this guy great. It was, like, looking at sort of this complicated figure. Although, you know, like, in the end... Both of these guys like had breaks with the Yankees at some point yeah. because Yogi had a feud with George Steinbrenner about the way that Yogi was fired as manager. And then eventually they had a reconciliation. And Reggie was kind of like driven off by the Yankees or left because like he wanted to be involved in ownership and leadership and was kind of barred from doing that. that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he tried to like be part of the group that was buying the Dodgers and then that didn't work out. So it kind of ends with Reggie now being with the Astros and he's like a he's like a special assistant there. Except like, you know, he's he's talking now and speaking out about minorities in front office and ownership and everything. And the guy that he's like paired with is Jim Crane yeah. in Houston. And and it was very much like, you know, Jim Crane is the the partner that I've wanted and Ooh. like he's listening to me and everything. And it's like Jim Crane's diversity record is not the best. No. As a, the, as subject, a, the subject of repeated litigation, in fact. Yes, yes, yeah. indeed. In lawsuits against his, his pre-Astros yeah. company and shipping and logistics and everything. So that was kind of like, is Jim Crane like using this guy for image rehab or like is he sincere? And it was like... Reggie's getting heard now, but it's by Jim Crane. Like, that doesn't seem like the best person to work with on this. Anyway. Although a person deeply in need of that message in all likelihood. That is true, too. Yeah. So I guess he he needs to hear it. So that's something. But just kind of tossing out a a qualified recommendation for those if you're in the market for baseball documentaries or you're a Yankees person who wants to reminisce about Yankee stuff or 
if you don't know that Yogi Berra was a good baseball player and <laughs> you need to be told about that. If you need to to join the the, the Justice for Yogi Berra movement yes. as if we're confused on that score. <laughs> right, yeah. Sometimes it is funny when you watch things and you're like, I'm confused by the vibe you're bringing to this project. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, like, I, I'm a little con- – but but it sounds like in, in general it was good. But, yeah, it, sometimes you're like – we're not. Oh, you're fine. It's okay. Yeah. We're not confused. We no, we got yeah. that. We got it. <laughs> you were very great. Yeah, yeah. All the stuff about like him saying these, uh, you know, sayings, and and in the movie they have him like you know. There's a Confucius quote, and then there's a Yogi quote. It, they talk about how some of those quotes are kind of ascribed to him, but he didn't really say them, and maybe they were manufactured for him to say, or someone else said it and yeah. attributed it to him. But but all that stuff like him being a larger than just on the field figure is largely a compliment like yeah. he was really liked and and in, endures you know his memory will be more enduring because of all that stuff than because of the fact that he was a good hitter and he didn't strike out a lot right like that stuff's all true and and we shouldn't forget about that right. but also if you want to live on you know like be a, a pitch man and be in Aflac ads and and have a candy bar named after you in Reggie's case. Like yeah. that stuff, that stuff probably goes a long way towards your legacy living on more so than there are a lot of great baseball players who never really transcended being great baseball players yeah. and thus they're kind of forgotten, right? And maybe they're in need of documentaries because people don't know that they were great players, but also there isn't really an audience for that because no one knows who they were. <laughs> so, so yeah. But, you know, if you think, oh, Yogi Berra, he was just that fun, colorful guy who would say these sort of inscrutable things that also made a sort of sense. If you didn't know that he was also a catcher of, of great repute and won a lot of World Series and hit well, then, well, now you do, or you can if you watch It Ain't Over. Anyway, they were both a, a fairly good time. So the Pass Blast from 2007 comes to us, as always, from David Lewis, who is an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. And he writes... The chase for a historic home run ball. In 2007, home run milestones were in the air. Not only did Barry Bonds spend the summer chasing Henry Aaron's all-time home run record, but Alex Rodriguez hit his 500th homer. Adding to the excitement, one of baseball's unique traits meant that when the historic homer was hit, one lucky fan would be able to take a piece of history home with them. As reported in an August 12, 2006 AP article, as the milestones crept closer, fans and memorabilia seekers across the country strategized how they could improve their chances at catching the big one. Zach Hample. <laughs> described in the article as a ball-collecting savant, gave casual fans some pointers in an interview with the AP. Hample's first suggestion was to always bring a glove with you to the game. He also suggested attending batting practice to learn how the balls bounce and studying where specific players hit home runs most frequently. I guess he did not recommend shoving children out of the way in order to. Did catch you see the ball. he got he got banned from? <laughs> yeah, ballpark. I saw. This is very timely. I, yeah. I think I think not the first ballpark he has been banned for, but yeah, he he got banned from a a minor league park, the the high A affiliate of the Rockies. Yeah, <laughs> which I don't I don't know that that he is has been there or has any plans to be there. He was not there recently as far as I know but they just decided preemptively that, yeah. uh, that they don't want him around I think they're not the first to to do that because uh, the most recent incident with Hample is that he was at an Orioles game 
I guess the Orioles game where Shohei Otani almost cycled yeah. and and Cedric Mullins had met with a, a fan and a, a streamer and MLB the show streamer and then Mullins hit a home run and Zach Hampel caught it and people were suggesting, requesting that Hampel give the ball to this guy and yeah. and he refused and, yep. and said, uh, no, I'm the, the Mullins guy tonight. So yeah. continuing not to endear himself to, uh, to fans in general, <laughs> but uh, he did not catch Barry Bonds's uh, record setting home run. He just provided some tips. And in the end, David continues, it proved better to be lucky than well-prepared. Bonds's record-setting 756th home run ended up in the possession of 21-year-old Matt Murphy after taking a ricochet off the stands and heading directly toward his seat in the middle of the row. Murphy, who emerged from a pile with a torn shirt and bloodied face in addition to the ball, ended up all right. He sold the ball at auction shortly thereafter for over $750,000, which I guess was worth being in the pile and, and having a cut. But... That ball, I think, had an interesting afterlife because it was bought by Mark Echo, the fashion designer, and then he like laser etched an asterisk into it. Do you remember? No. <laughs> yeah, because I think after he bought it, he held a, a contest, like an online fan voting thing to determine what to do with the ball. And the choices were put an asterisk on it, leave it alone. Or shoot it to the moon. I don't. I don't know how they plan to <laughs> shoot it to the moon. Shoot but, it to the moon. <laughs> yeah, but so but ambitious. Asterisk one, and I think he he like emblazoned an asterisk onto the ball, laser cut into the ball above the major league logo by a master engraver, and then there was a controversy about whether the Hall of Fame would still want it. And it said that it would, even though it was uh, defaced in that way. And then there was kind of a controversy about whether he would hand it over or not. And ultimately, he did, I think. So the Hall said they still wanted it. And I don't know whether it's been on display or whether it's just part of the collection there in the archives. But yeah. as far as I know, the Hall has it. I wonder whether it's depreciated since that purchase. I, I think... Barry Bonds' final home run, 762, I, I think that that has sold multiple times since then. And the most recent time, it actually sold for less. So I think it hmm. has depreciated, which I guess makes uh, some sense given just the legacy of, of Barry Bonds just in general, perhaps. But yeah, I don't know if that has proven to be the best investment, but uh, but someone made bank on it at the time. Matt Murphy did, and I guess it's in the Hall of Fame's collection with its asterisk to this day. Yeah, that's that's wild. Mm -hmm. I'd like to watch a Barry Bonds documentary someday. Now, that would be interesting. If he were <sighs> frank and, and open, we should do like a who would be the best baseball documentary subjects mm. if it were actually like a clear-eyed look, you know, because like I, I read that A-Rod is working on one or wants to do one, maybe inspired by the Jeter one, right? And an A-Rod one, in theory— would be more interesting to me than a Jeter one, just because uh, A-Rod, you know, <laughs> like a little bit more of a complicated figure in a lot of ways. And and if he would be frank and open up about things, which Derek Jeter historically has been hesitant yeah. to do, 
I'd watch like a, a no holds barred, like open book A-Rod interview, but I don't know whether we would get one of those, at least with his participation. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's such a tricky thing. I think we've had a couple of examples in the last couple of years of like, wow, you get this incredible access and there is something to that. You do get, you know, an insight that you might otherwise uh, lack, but there are obviously some pretty intense editorial concerns that come with that. And I think, you know, there are plenty of documentarians who are capable of balancing those concerns. So, mm-hmm. you know, we've gotten we've gotten some good work, but there are times where you're like, hey, why didn't you get asked about that? Is it because you agreed to say, like, they agreed to right. not ask you, you know? so mm-hmm. Yeah, right. It, like when Barry Bonds was in the William Mays doc and talking about, and, you know, Mays was talking about Barry, right, and, and vice versa. And, you know, they, they skirted the, the steroid issue with yeah. those two guys, right, yeah. which is not shocking. But also, like, if Barry Bonds ever really wanted to open up about that someday, I would be interested in hearing I from would, him. I would, too, you know? Mm-hmm. And sometimes... Uh, a subject will go into one of those with the intent to sort of obfuscate and and deceive. And e- even in the the method by which they do that, they end up revealing something. Like, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know the man. I don't know the mm-hmm. man. But I, mm-hmm. I would put good money on A-Rod being someone who is unintentionally fascinating about himself, <laughs> even yeah. in moments when he does not want to disclose um, because that just seems consistent with how he has talked about himself. I'm like, wow, that's, you didn't mean to tell me what you just did maybe, but, um, but -hmm. you did. So that's, that's interesting. So sometimes it's fun to watch them. Fun is probably the wrong word, but revealing, (laughs) right. To watch them. Revealing, even if they don't intend to reveal anything. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. Well, after we finished recording, the Blue Jays-Yankees shenanigans continued. Blue Jays started jawing at the Yankees about their third base coach being outside of the coach's box. Later in the game, Aaron Boone yelled at the Blue Jays about their third base coach being outside of the box. But also, Domingo Herman was not only inspected this time for sticky stuff, but also ejected. So it does seem that there may have been some sort of actual cheating going on. Ultimately, though, Aaron Judge, as far as I know, non-suspiciously hit a home run that won the game for the Yankees. So that's one way to not necessarily quiet the suspicion, but certainly answer it. This might quiet the suspicion, however, after that game, Ken Rosenthal reported, after speaking to Blue Jays pitcher Jay Jackson, who was the one pitching to judge, that Jackson acknowledged that he was tipping. Quoting here, before Jackson came to a set position, he brought his hands up near his ear as he gripped the ball. The grip indicating which type of pitch he was about to throw was visible to Yankees first base coach Travis Chapman, according to multiple Jays sources. Jackson, in a telephone interview Tuesday night, acknowledged he was tipping his slider, but said the timing of his delivery was more of an issue than his grip. Jackson said it was the time it was taking me from my set position, from my glove coming from my head to my hip. On fastballs, I was kind of doing it quicker than on sliders. They were kind of picking up on it. So there you have it. Rosenthal continues, Judge was not stealing signs illegally. He seemingly was looking at Chapman, who could have relayed Jackson's tell through hand signals, perfectly permissible behavior under Major League Baseball rules. So as we discussed, some suspicion is inevitable and perhaps understandable or even desirable in a post-banging scheme 
Steam world, but much of the time, players pick up on things without resorting to cameras and trash cans. Also, some of you wrote in about this. I didn't want to get back on my soapbox about live in-game player interviews on the field. But on Sunday, which was Mother's Day, Tristan Casas was mic'd up on ESPN while playing first base for the Red Sox. And ESPN's Carl Ravitch said, I know your mom passed away when you were young. What does Mother's Day mean to you and your brother? Which is a heck of a question to ask someone at any time, let alone while playing first base in a Major League Baseball game. And Casas had a nice answer. He talked about the many mother figures in his life, whether they shared his name or not. But come on, what are we doing here? There's a baseball game going on. Let the kids play, as they say. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay almost ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Brendan Lentfer, Sean Mayland, Casey Shankland, Derek Ma, and Adam Crow. Thanks to all of you. Patrons get access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only. They also get access to monthly bonus episodes, plus playoff live streams and discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships and so, so much more. Check out patreon.com slash effectively wild. If you are a patron, you can message us through the Patreon site. All others can email us at podcast at fangraphs.com. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash effectively wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We'll be back with another episode soon. Talk to you a little later this week. Where do you go in a world of bad takes for the good takes on baseball and life with a balance of analytics and humor philosophical music Effectively wild, effectively wild, effectively wild.